Welcome to The Owlish Folk, a podcast that answers questions about the English language. I'm Amanda, and with me is Dave. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Dave. everyone. <laughs> Hello, everyone that's listening. Why did I repeat that? I don't know. Okay. So today we're doing something a little bit different. Yes, following on from our Christmas Words episode, we have an interview with uh, an expert on religions and religious traditions, Bridget McGregor. And in this interview, we talked to her about origins of Christmas and a few different things related to traditions and that kind of thing. It's quite different to what we usually do, and it's quite long. But let us know if you like it or if you don't like it, so we know whether to do more interviews like this in future. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to the Owlish Folk podcast that answers questions about the English language. I'm Dave, and with me today is Amanda and Bridget. Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm Bridget. Uh, I have words to describe both of you. I should have started with those. Oh, All no. right, with me today is the Chatillion, Bridget. What does that mean? A Chatillion. Good or bad, what do you think? I'm hoping it's good, but I think it might be bad. Since it's your first time with us today, it's good. <laughs> and it's Christmas, of course it's good. Someone who is delightfully amusing. Oh, that's so nice. Thank that you. That is true. Bridget is always very positive and happy. Yeah, yeah. Always, Except always. Except when there's a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Except when she isn't. Yeah. Um, it's uh, from a French word, chatoilier, which means to tickle. Excellent. So... You know, will there be any tickling today? Who knows? Uh, Amanda. Yes, let's hear it. The librocubicularist Amanda. That's a mouthful. Librocubicularist. Librocubicularist. Yes. Okay, so libro book. Yes. Cubic. Space area, I don't know. It means somebody who reads in bed. Yes, related to mm, books. That is me, yes. So do we have a question for the episode today? Well, we do. Since it is Christmas, the question is related to Christmas. Some people say Happy Christmas, while others say Merry Christmas. Mm. Which one is better? Which one is right? So, Bridget and I are from the same area of the world, and we say Merry, and you would say Happy. Yeah. And uh, why do you say that? Because everyone says it. It's just... Mm -hmm. Well, it's probably as common as Merry Christmas, where I'm from. Well, haven't you thought about why you say happy, though? No, because everyone says it. It's just normal. It mm. would be weird if everyone stopped saying it, and I would think, what happened to Happy Christmas? Mm. Where's that gone? I just always kind of assumed that the Happy Christmas from the UK was just um, a more um, formal way, I suppose, of saying it. I think it's just I an just always associate, you know... Yeah. formalities with the British and the crassness with the, my fellow Americans. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Mary, uh, Christmas isn't always a very happy time though. <laughs> well, I would say for me it is. So that's why I think mm. of happy Christmas. I think Christmas, I'm so excited for mm. it. I wake up on Christmas day and I'm happy to open presents and eat good food. And, and to spend... see if the reindeer ate the carrots that you left out for mm. them. Yeah, I think of Christmas as just a happy time. We watch movies and we spend time together and it's exciting and we exchange gifts and we sing happy songs, right? And while I do agree with you, I, I think this is because for my family members, there's a lot of sadness for people that have died, people whose memories they're trying to kind of bring back with all the traditions that they've done throughout mm -hmm. the holidays. So 
for me, I mean, it is a happy time, and I think it's a very happy time for kids, but also a very sad time. Now, both of us are coming from a very narrow perspective. Right. And we're thinking of Christmas as it is now. That's right. And this is why we have our guest, Bridget, today. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah, Gotta get some, some answers. Knowledge. Yeah, finally. So, Bridget, hopefully you're going to be able to shed more light on this. Is Christmas the happy time that I want to think that it is? Well, I would say that Christmas is definitely actually a balance of both happy and sad, of birth and of death, and of all things in between. So today I sort of want to look at the complexity of Christmas and look at four different aspects that combine to our current Christmas traditions and the things that we think are sort of normal and natural and how they've developed together and how they encompass maybe the fullness of the season. Okay, well that sounds interesting and a lot deeper than I've ever considered. But I think we owe it to think a little, we owe it to ourselves to think a bit more deeply about the season. It's, for many people, their favorite season, the most important yeah. season of the year. But it's a, as Bridget said, it's more complex than people really believe it is. So Bridget, let's begin by talking about the traditions of the church. All right, so um, these days in secular society, we're used to a very specific calendar that's based on sort of, you know, perhaps religious holidays, but also a lot of secular holidays. And we tend to have our own cycles. You know, this is my Christmas holidays. This is my summer holidays. This is the time when I'm busiest at work, etc. But throughout history and the past 2000 years, especially, uh, many people within the Western tradition have had their calendars based on church cycles. So um, when we see Christmas as the birth of Jesus, that's fine, but we have to understand that within the church cycle, there's no disconnect between seasons. They all actually refer to each other. Um, they call forward to feasts and festivals that will come, and they also respond backwards to other ones because it is a cycle and it's a life cycle. And so wrapped up in the story of Christmas, we actually have also the resurrection and the death of Jesus. And so Jesus only comes within the church cycle in order to die. That is definitely seen in uh, Christmas carols still today, even if you're not familiar with sort of, you know, church imagery and traditions, you're familiar with Christmas carols that sometimes directly talk about the death of Jesus. The first Noel directly talks about the blood of Jesus and then responds back with, oh, but he's born today. Wow. Um, but most church hymn carols are a little bit more um, indirect where they talk about eternal life and salvation and um, you know, sin being overcome. And although that's not directly talking about the death of Jesus, it's definitely referring us to the logical, religious understanding of the end of Christ. And so you cannot understand Christmas as the birth of Christ without understanding the death of Christ that is to come. So in the Christian tradition, then, if the, if the carol is about salvation and eternal life, then to get to that, you've got to have the death of Jesus. To get to that, you've got to have the life of Jesus. And so then you've got to have the birth of Jesus. And then we've got Christmas. Right. right. And it's a cycle. So everybody knows, um, you know, it's not just like, oh, we're Christmas and Jesus is born. Mm. Yay. 
in the actual prayers that are talked about in many churches around this time, the prayers also include things about the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Christ. And so we're constantly sort of being reminded by two things, by the birth and the death simultaneously. Now, since you're talking about cycles, can you give an example maybe of some time in the liturgical calendar, maybe around the summer, where the birth of Christ and the death in the following spring is kind of alluded? Or is it just a continuous? It's a continuum okay. because you're talking about, you know, the be, before we have the birth of Jesus, there's all sorts of things that lead up to that. There is Mary finding out that she is pregnant. There is actually Mary. Um, there's so many church traditions about her upbringing, and she was brought up in the temple, and there's her going to the temple. Mm. Um, and so it's this, like, very, very clear progression. Every year, the same cycle, the same parts of the story that go through and get to the, the birth of the church, right? And mm -hmm. then we return back again to sort of the story of how we get to the birth of the church. That's interesting because I was raised Roman Catholic and as a child, I don't think that I was really cognizant of that. And I don't think that children, you know, you don't learn about that stuff until you're probably older. But to me, thinking back, I remember there being very distinct holidays within the year from January to December and that was it so it's weird because when you know in the winter time Jesus is born and then you have the winter and then he dies and is resurrected again in the spring and then you just mm. continue on and it happens again so I think I would think of the calendar from like January to December as a child and all the events and not necessarily like a cycle. Right. And that's also because you're a modern, yeah. right? You're born yeah. in this time and space. And even many religious people, you have to be quite religious and quite engaged in a liturgical cycle mm. to get all of the rest of them. But many previous generations, all of the holidays and festivals are built around these other, now what we see as kind of obscure festivals, but actually were important festivals as well throughout the year mm. and tied to things like the harvest and the planting and all of those kinds of things. Mm. So the next thing that I want to talk about uh, is King Herod. And I think these days um, there's kind of like this sort of trend to be like the wise men weren't at the birth of Jesus. And that's true. The wise men are not part of the actual birth of Jesus. They come um, a couple of years later in the story of Jesus. They a don't couple of years later? Yes. They don't arrive on the moment. Not everybody is arriving the same moment. However, again, within the liturgical structure, they are coming at the end of the 12 days of Christmas, mm -hmm. which is the festival of Epiphany. And so they are not part of the actual night of the birth of Jesus, but they are definitely part of the Christmas season. So the story, the basic story, if you're not familiar with it, is that uh, these kings, who were not Jewish kings, they were Gentile kings, they um, get word and they know that there has been this really important person born and they are traveling from very far with these gifts to give to Jesus, one of them being myrrh, which is completely related with funeral customs. So again, one of the presents that's given to young Jesus relates to his funeral mm. later on. But in the process, they end up going to Herod and trying to find out where Jesus is. And Herod is the king and he becomes very worried and concerned about Jesus. Like if this Jesus is so important, maybe he will overthrow Herod at some point. 
And so he wants to get some, some knowledge, some insider knowledge of where Jesus might be so that he can kill him before he usurps his power. In the process of this, Mary and Joseph find out about this. And so they escape into Egypt with uh, young Jesus. And in response to this, Herod kills many babies. The church tradition is about 14,000, whether that's a historical thing or not, whether this is an, a, a real story doesn't matter. It matters in the context mm -hmm. of the Christmas season and within the religious context. And so again, we have right in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas, a commemoration of these infants. And it's called the massacre or the slaughter of the innocents. 14,000? 14,000 is the tradition. And wow. they are considered the first martyrs of Christ because these children mm -hmm. were killed hoping to maybe get Jesus. Maybe yeah. in the murder of all these children, we'll come upon this Jesus and we'll get him out of the way. And so there, I mean, this is commemorated the 20, it depends on your church tradition, 27, 28, 29th, somewhere around there, but it's the middle of the 12 days of feasting. We remember dead babies. Yeah. So in my school plays, right, we would always have a school performance at Christmas and the Herod figure was always like a pantomime villain and you would boo his Herod. He killed 14,000 children. That's... Yeah, more than just your pantomime villain, right? He didn't actually just kill the children. He, as a sort of punishment for this, he starts to die by being eaten alive by worms. And he knows Ooh. that he's dying. And so he kills a bunch of his family member and, you know, high priests and people, important people around him to take them with him before he dies. So he's a really... Um, a really nice figure <laughs> in church tradition. Wow. Okay. And this connects with St. Nicholas? So this is the, of course, story of Jesus's birth and early days. Um, but then we get this figure of Santa Claus, and he's a very complex figure. He is sort of in origins within church tradition with St. Nicholas, who was a 14th century bishop of Turkey, very important figure in the church. Um, and he is known for, you know, throwing coins into the house of girls who need dowry money because otherwise they're going to have to be prostitutes if they don't have money. And so this is where we get this idea of a, you know, kind, compassionate, older man who is trying to give presents to children and look out for their well-being. But around Christmas time, you will see many, many, many memes about St. Nicholas slapping Arius. And this happens at the Council of Nicaea, which is an extremely important council in the history of the church. And they have a fight about the nature of Jesus. Was, was Jesus co-eternal with God the Father or was he a lesser being than God the Father? And St. Nicholas gets so angry at Arius, who has a different opinion from him, that he gets up and he slaps him in the middle of the council. Like a hand slap like to the a face. Hand, like a big hand slap. And so this is now in Great. 21st century, <laughs> uh, in the 21st century way, it's now memed. Uh, Have you seen these memes before? No, I haven't. But I heard a really terrifying story about St. Nicholas, where he was traveling and these three boy, boys were murdered by an innkeeper and the innkeeper had um, dismembered their bodies and pickled them in brine. Okay. And, uh, Don't want to get caught. <laughs> nope. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, Saint, he, did get he did get caught. He did get caught because St. Nicholas found the bodies um, 
and restore them back to life. Wow. So good job, Saint yeah. Nick. Yes. Good on you. Good on it. Yes. All right. <laughs> So again, we have lots of stories about <clears throat> birth and death yeah. <laughs> and being reborn, being put together, mm. whether they're the story of Jesus or the story of St. Mm. Nicholas, to prove sainthood. So we've just been talking about sort of the origin of our contemporary myth of Santa Claus right now, and alongside these traditions of the historical Saint Nicholas, we also have the pagan traditions. And I want to just be really clear that I'm not using pagan in a pejorative term. Sometimes also people call them pre-Christian traditions. Um, but actually, I'd like to argue that they're not pre-Christian now. They're actually quite part of the mm. Christian tradition and the tradition that we have now. So pagan is not being used in any sort of derogatory form. It's just meaning um, the traditions that existed before the beginning of Christianity in Europe. Mm. Um, so alongside with the St. Nicholas figure, we get a lot of mixing in of Odin or uh, Odin, who is a pagan deity. And the ways that he's, he's a very important pagan deity, but the ways in which he gets combined with St. Nicholas is that he himself has an eight-legged horse of eight reindeer mm. and he is often connected with something called the wild hunt this isn't just related to odin many 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 gods and goddesses um, as well as biblical historical figures like herod for example he comes <clears throat> back again are said to go on these wild hunts they're kind of like crazy chaotic wild revelries through the air or through uh, the forest and there's continual shifting views on this kind of wild hunt. Some people see it as like this really great thing at certain times and in certain Western cultures. If you meet this wild hunt, you're gonna get blessings and presents. Uh, other people see it as a really dangerous, uh, demonic kind of hunt that you don't wanna sort of be involved with. And many people connect this kind of wild hunt with Santa Claus going through the sky, racing through the sky from house to house, uh, hopefully bringing blessings, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But the, yeah, the jolly guy racing through the sky with his eight reindeer, ho, 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 laughing all the way. Um, yeah, it does, that does seem to connect, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it's bringing, bringing blessings, but I mean, yeah. at the same time, Santa's kind of terrifying. I was just going to say that, you know, <laughs> in that song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Yeah. the verses are, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Yeah. And my daughter was listening to that the other day. And she's like, he's watching me? And she got really freaked out. And I was like, you should get freaked out. It's a strange <laughs> song. It's scary, you know? It's a little bit creepy. Yeah, it's a little bit creepy. Movie. And Santa's coming into your house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> breaking into your house. Yes, creeping around your yeah. house. If anybody else is doing that, you'd be That's calling right. the police. But you're welcoming Santa in this case. But almost like you're frightened not to. You have to leave some kind of gift for him so yes. he's pleased with you. Yes. Yes. That's when right. he breaks into your house. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's really messed up. Yes, and so we're going to talk about that in a minute, the importance of uh, the different kind of characteristics of, of Santa Claus. But I want to talk about the naughty and nice because Odin actually has two ravens and they fly around the world and they listen in on the conversations and the, they watch the actions of humans and they report back to Odin, who is 
naughty and nice. Mm -hmm. So uh, these days we have this kind of idea of um, the Santa Claus figure just knowing. He just knows everything. And then, of course, within these traditions, we have the traditions of Santa's companions. And we'll talk about the elves in our current tradition now, but um, there's a lot of really scary companions that Santa Claus has. And the most common one that we talk about now is Krampus. And Krampus has come into lots of different uh, movies and songs and imagery. There's actually places still, um, not just in Europe, but also in North America where they have Krampus festivals. And I believe Philadelphia, I just saw pictures from one. And so everybody dresses up as Krampus and sometimes gets beaten up with a stick. No, thank you. <laughs> and might I add that as a woman, I want, ha I want to have nothing to do with anything related to Krampus. Okay? <laughs> so I should explain who Krampus is for people who don't know. He is a, a demon figure. Uh, he's definitely not human. He often is pictured with a large tongue that's hanging out of his mouth, sometimes with horns. And he carries a stick. And he's often chained to St. Nicholas in a lot of uh, Western European versions of him. And he is Santa's punisher in chief. And so, Great. whereas... You know, it, your your daughter, my son, is they're worried about being naughty and yeah. maybe not getting presents. Um, in different uh, myths of Santa Claus, you get beaten with a stick if you're a bad person, if you're a bad child. You would never get away with that these days. <laughs> never. You do. There are still places that have Krampus in this. I mean, not in North America as, mu as much, but definitely I, I feel like there's a resurgence. I feel like people are more interested in this. Bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> but also... Try it this Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Krampus is really showing this opposite side of the, the benign, kind, blessing figure. And so in... Nowadays, we have this idea of like a merciful God, a kind God. I wouldn't want to worship a God mm. who was a nice buddy Jesus, if you will. Mm. Um, but all the more ancient traditions have a much more vengeful God, a, a God that's much more interested in um, retribution. And most of the older deity figures throughout cultures have dual nature which is really what we have, too. I mean, none of us are, it's you know... It's very natural. I mean, yeah. in anything, there's lightness and, and darkness and good and bad. And, yeah, and if gods are yeah. based on, like, people, but with extreme powers, mm -hmm. there's still going to be flawed characters mm -hmm. in some ways. Yes. So as we have, like, Santa Claus becoming more and more kind of kind and benevolent figure, we also have his malevolent sidekick mm. that goes along that includes also black peter uh who's a very controversial figure in belgium and the netherlands who was probably santa's slave maybe an enslaved demon who became a black man and that causes quite a lot of problems and yeah. controversies mm. these days so santa had a demon who dished out punishments and he had a slave but in different cultures, okay. in different countries, in different areas. So they're right. not necessarily, Black Peter and Krampus and Santa are not really traveling necessarily together. A trinity. <laughs> a trinity, trinity of interestingness. Yeah. Um, but there's also, for example, in Iceland, uh, we have witch, a witch figure. There's actually a lot of witch figures who come at Christmas throughout Europe. Um, but the, the witch in this case, she will boil children alive if they are bad. And her cat, who's called the Yule Cat, um, will eat you on Christmas Eve if you're not wearing new clothes. 
Oh, so we talked about that last Isabella. episode. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we have lots of figures that are not pleasant figures, and they're definitely figures that have been used to, to scare children in the past. But again, we see everything as a modern, where the, the authority figure is the parent, but in the past, the authority figure has often been the master, the landowner who also employs you. Mm. And so there's a lot of suggestion that these kind of stories are related to keeping your workers in order more than keeping your child in Mm. order. Yule Shard was the person who doesn't get new clothes at Christmas (laughs) and might be eaten by a giant cat. Yule Shard. Now, is the Yule Cat black? Uh, I have usually seen it represented as Mm. black. I love black cats. Me too, my cat's black. Yes. And so the final figure that I want to talk about um, are the elves. And again, we see elves as like Santa's helpers and they were See, I think that they're weird and just strange. Why do you think that they're weird? Uh, Just being as small as they are with the pointy shoes that makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, And I just always see Mm. them as being mean, Mm. you know, not nice characters. Like there's that really old um, um, Rudolph movie. It's not the claymation, but it's the really old figures. And there's this one elf that wants to be a dentist. And yes. they're all really mean to him. I just... Nasty little things. Like, I don't see them as the being pleasant. from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. They're not necessarily evil, but they're definitely not good. And they don't cause the downfall of some of those children. But they don't stop it. And they do sing about it. But and I so, feel like they're the workers, yeah. too, you know? Yes. And so you feel that kind of strangeness because throughout history, they have not been good figures. They have been complex figures. They've been Mm. trickster figures. They've been shapeshifters. Elves and fairies and imps and leprechauns sometimes are are separate figures and sometimes are combined figures, but they tend to be, um, they they steal babies, changelings, for example. Mm. They replace your baby. Uh, they also destroy food. They enchant people. If they like you, again, they bring blessings and gifts. And if they don't like you, they make your life kind of miserable. So Santa's happy little worker helpers that we have now, they're a little bit more nuanced in the past. And I think you're still sort of feeling that, that strangeness about them. You're a little bit wary of them because you know that they can be a little bit mischievous. And that they're maybe not kind always to humans. So how do we get the elves to like us? What can we do? Well... To give us their blessings. These days, I guess they just give their blessings because we're in the 21st century. But <laughs> I suppose yeah. it, it's interesting because we, in, in traditional you know culture now, we leave things for the reindeer, we leave things for mm. Santa, but we don't leave anything for the elves. And they're the ones who are doing all the work. That's why they're such dicks to us, right? I'm going to leave Possibly. something for the elves. What are you going to leave? Pile of crap. <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. What, what do elves like to eat? They're not even what seen as eating. <laughs> yeah, they're always just the sidekicks, always kind of unimportant, in the background doing the work while Santa gets all the credit. All the credits. But little do we know, Santa has a slave and a demon. <laughs> traditions to perhaps Victorian traditions and look at how they have um, evolved our understanding of Christmas and how they also contribute to kind of the dark side of Christmas. 
So just like with the church traditions, I feel like I need to give a little bit of church background for the medieval period. And so um, we have these quarter days throughout the medieval church calendar. Um, those are Easter and Corpus Christi and All Saints Day and Christmas. And they sort of mark the seasons as major festivals for the seasons. But along with those festivals, we have sort of combination of um, folk traditions and pagan traditions and local traditions that are happening, which have a counterpoint to this. And so we have Carnival and we have All Hallows Day and we have all the midsummer festivities and frivolities that are happening. And then we also have Solstice and Yule and they provide a counterpoint. And if there's any sort of um, unifying factor that I've been talking about throughout, it's about this balance between dark and light throughout between uh, birth and death in the story of Jesus, but also with the festivals, there's sort of a, a structure and anti-structure that is happening. And these are interplaying. During these periods, these are really special periods. They're special for people because they get to feast and they get to you know, have a holiday, a day off. They get mm. to have their fun times and maybe eat well for the first time in mm. a long time. But in terms of the world order, we have a really liminal, special, somewhat dangerous time period. And during this time period, heaven and earth are closer. Um, we can have topsy-turviness, so peasants can become kings for a day. Mm. Um, we have this period where often, you know, our, our vices and all of those things can come to bear. We can perhaps eat more before we have to fast for Lent or people have a lot of sex, or there's lots of partying and revelry and gluttony that might be happening. And the veil is really thin in between the human world and the world of the dead. Um, so we tend to think of this period, we understand this period with Halloween, that there's mm. this kind of special period of time where there's sort of danger in the air and like there's maybe there's ghosts roaming around your spirits and we might have to do something about that, but it also kind of is interesting to us at the same time that that's happening. Um, but this also happens at Christmas time. And so there is a very long tradition, especially in um, England, about ghost stories at Christmas time. We are familiar with that through a Christmas carol, but Dickens is not the first person to come up with ghosts at Christmas. Mm. He is kind of the end of a long tradition, maybe not the end, but he is, is part of a long tradition at that point. So Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is all about a spirit, a deity, a, we're not quite so sure that's coming. And most people don't think of that as happening at Christmas time, but that story is about Christmas. And there's a, a long, long history of these kinds of stories. And the idea is during this special time, Ghosts can come back, spirits can contact us, our ancestors can come and they can remind us of our behavior and what we should be doing. And there's this, this interesting interplay that is happening. And we still have this in, again, another Christmas Carol in the most wonderful time of the year. It says, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmas long, long ago. So that's part of the festivities is telling these ghost stories, which is retaining this very medieval tradition of understanding the the state of the world mm. during these important periods. Now, this does connect to then, I guess, modern 
uh, ghost stories for, for Christmas, right? Mm. I mean, you've got like the story of gremlins, <laughs> which is like a modern ghost Christmas story where the, the mysterious shopkeeper appears only at Christmas mm. and gives that magical animal. And then the animal, you've got to keep it dry. If it gets wet, it reproduces. And it's all about, I guess, abstinence. And then if you let it eat after midnight, then it becomes evil. And so, yeah, all about like keeping your, your kind of desires under control. But I think you, you can also relate it to a figurative sense of ghosts, um, of memories of things past or people past that are coming back to kind of haunt us in a sense. Yeah, you said as well, like Christmas for you is a time of remembering people you knew mm -hmm. but who have died. <clears throat> yeah, my mother, whose parents died a year apart from one another when she was very young. Uh, she always gets really emotional during this time of year because this is the time where she remembers them. This was the happiest time of the year for her. So, mm. And I, I know a lot of people like that, you know. It's yeah. lost loves, family members, you know. Start thinking about regret. You know, these ghosts in your history come back to haunt you. So I suppose it's that sort of marker in, in the cycle of the, yeah. the year, that marker of... You, you make a new promise for next time I'll do these things better. Yeah. But this It's is like the New Year, your New Year's resolutions, yeah. right? Yeah, it's all, I guess that's all tied together. Well, our conscience is, is peaked at that point, and then yeah. we make a change January 1st, right? Again, during in the middle of the, the 12 days of Christmas, mm -hmm. we decide to make a change in our lives. It's also a time of magic. I mean, what we're talking about right now is kind of ghosts, and that's kind of turned more into a sort of magical time of the year, I suppose. But for example, my grandmother would always tell me this very old tradition that animals talk on Christmas I've Eve. I've heard that before, yeah. And so if you go in, she was, you know, lived on a farm, and so if you go into the barn, I was, I was never at her house on Christmas Eve, but she would always say, if you go into the barn on Christmas Eve, the animals can talk because it's this period where these boundaries between heaven and earth, mm -hmm. but also humans and animals and living in the dead can be overturned or can be broached, can be linked in some ways, which is really interesting. And so that's part of this sort of balance that we have between these different options and also this combining of things that are often opposites. They kind of come together at these special points, including Christmas. The other part of this, this structure, anti-structure, is that especially during the medieval times, Christmas is a time of extraordinary drunkenness and revelry mm. and bad behavior, I suppose. Um, so uh, we have the Twelfth Night Rituals and we have wassailing, which is the beginning of caroling, but you go to the master's house and you, you kindly at first ask for food and drink, which is alcohol, um, but what it often turns into is bands of young men <laughs> roaming around demanding food and drink at your house harassing people yeah. harassing people and also dressing before, up right? yeah dressing mm. up like it's like halloween but for drunk young men and drunk <laughs> adults and we still get this with like we wish you a merry christmas that's all about going to somebody's house and giving them your blessing which is give us food and drink and we'll and we'll wish you a merry christmas mm. and a happy new year or bring me some figgy pudding and if you don't bring me some footy figgy pudding we won't go until we get some so that's kind of this background of this song um, it's threatening so isn't it it's definitely threatening it's about it's <laughs> there's there's some violence implicit in that song and in that activity yeah so like trick or treating at halloween yeah give us some treats or we will do something yeah. awful to you 
And so the final part of this point is that because of all of these sort of folk and local and sort of pagan traditions mixed in with Christian tradition, as well as the increasing chaotic nature of Christmas, plus the Protestant uh, uh, Reformation, we have actually the banning of Christmas that happens uh, during that, the Protestant Reformation in England. And then for much, much longer in New England, the Puritans ban Christmas. It's not allowed to be celebrated. It's uh, part of the saint worship, they say. It's all about these traditions that aren't supposed to be Christian. It's about a festival that's not really that important technically within the church, considering other festivals. And so, um, I mean, the Protestant Reformation is a very violent, bloody period, smashing of things, killing of people, jailing of people, taking back property and possessions. But that also goes into Christmas as well. So this whole like war on Christmas, the secular world is against Christmas is quite funny because really it was Christians who were banning Christmas first. Mm. And this comes up in Narnia, right? In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe the White Witch banned Christmas but made everything winter and then she took all the people who disagreed with her and then turned them to stone, locked them away in her, in in her Care Paravel. Yes. Yeah. So during the medieval period, we have um, this sort of balance between very important church traditions and the church calendar and the cycle and also a lot of folk traditions and a lot of these things kind of merging together. And then uh, sort of the result of this is a lot of banning of Christmas and persecution and all of those kinds of things. And it's really only when we start getting the Hanoverian kings and Victoria and Albert, all these people who have more German heritage that we start getting sort of this return to Christmas. And especially with Victoria, she gets really into the family aspect, the morality and ethics of Christmas, that Christmas can be a time for reforming ourselves and remembering each other. And this is where we also get this Charles Dickens kind of charity aspect of it, etc. Charity has always existed with the master-servant relationship and all of those kinds of things, but it becomes more of a, a person-to-person rather than maybe hierarchy sort of to, to subordinate relationship. Um, and so it becomes a little bit less dark, I would mm. say, a little bit less about uh, gluttony and vices and more a little bit in the Victorian way of reforming ourselves and being a little bit better. About turning over a new leaf. You know, I've just realized turning over a new leaf isn't about leaves. It's leaf-like page, a new page of yes, the book. in your book of life. Yeah, in your book of life. I thought you it was You learned about... something today. Yeah, I thought it was literally a leaf. What and a dumbass. Was... <laughs> no. <clears throat> I'm sorry. What a wonderful uh, epiphany. Love you. I don't need to edit that. <laughs> no, don't edit that. It's good. Mm, love you too. Oh, man. But you would have thought, though, like, it could have been a leaf. Anyway. You know, uh, the leaves have fallen. The season will change. Soon it will be spring. New beginnings, maybe. So everybody's it's right, connected. in a way. It is connected. Yeah. There we go. Connections okay. everywhere. You're not such an Christmas traditions. So we've gone through 
the Christian background and pagan uh, paganism and how these things come together and then in the Middle Ages a lot of darkness ending with the banning well yeah banning and then (laughs) then a revival a revival of that thanks to the the Germans right a lot of German traditions a lot of the older traditions bringing them back into England and then New England and in England those German markets Christmas markets are a really big deal that's Mm -hmm. seen as part of Christmas tradition now is go to the German markets they do it right Mm. and you get proper German Christmas food and decorations and stuff and it feels like that's where the heart of Christmas is for a lot of people is that the same in Canada and in America? Christmas markets are sort of reviving, I think. When I was growing up, we didn't have Christmas markets like that. These days, it's starting to become bigger. In upstate New York, uh, where I'm from, the area was built by the Dutch and the Polish and the Germans. So actually growing up, we went to a lot of Polish Christmas festivals and German festivals. Um, And uh, yeah, they're a lot of fun. When I was little, the German Hall Christmas dance was the best thing ever. But then you've, what you're talking about is happy times, right? And there's no <laughs> hint of all the like 14,000 dead babies no. and banning Christmas and uh, having to have new clothes to please your master or whatever. All that stuff is, is forgotten and now it's happy times for children. Yes. Which is what Christmas is their feels like memories. it is to me. Yeah. So along with all of this, I just also want to emphasize that there's so much controversy around Christmas. I think uh, people who are very religious often get really upset about anything that smacks of paganism. How is this possible? Um, And I don't think that we have to get upset about this at all. And from a very theological point of view, you know, I know a priest who talks about baptizing things into the Christian tradition. So this wasn't maybe originally Christian, but we can baptize it. We can find symbolism that can relate to our Christian understanding of something. So, so like reverse engineer something into a... Well, that, uh, I just relevance. read an, an article recently by a priest who was saying, you know, like a, a, a log doesn't have to be a Yule log. It doesn't have to be a pagan log. There's no pagan log and Christian log. A log is just a log. Mm. A tree is just a tree. So it doesn't matter what the historical origins of are of something we can understand this within a context that makes sense to us and is okay for us at the same time I think a lot of secular people these days you know like oh I don't want to do Santa Claus I don't want to lie to my child and I think that you can find lots of different ways to experience mystery and um, magic in a way that's appropriate to you as a secular person mm. as well and so there doesn't need to be this when, when sometimes people when they go back and they try to find the origins of things they use it to say I can't do this anymore I won't do this anymore instead of understanding the beautiful evolution of traditions and how all of these things are part of our secular culture or you know our religious culture our our historical background who we are and that can be a really beautiful mixing of things and that's the balance as well it doesn't have to be one specific place or origin that we balance all of these things together and that makes us a complex individual and complex culture Hmm. but then you know we've been talking a lot about monsters (laughs) and the issue is who what what's this monster in our secular society um who chases us on the wild hunt what are we the most afraid of and definitely Christmas is the time that highlights a lot of our vices and highlights a lot of our sadness as well. So Mm -hmm. 
a, a huge part of Christmas these days is understanding that we're a very commercialist and capitalist society and that Christmas is the time when people go in debt and the time when people's poverty is highlighted the most and when our children are gimme, 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 gimme and want all this selfishness, you know, and when we feel pulled in every direction by so many parties and presents and all the decorations and all the money that we have to spend. And so to go along with this and the balance idea we have now also a very strong tradition in our culture about charity and about giving to others. That if we have a big feast, we also need to give money to a homeless shelter or a, a food kitchen or to the Salvation Army. So for Christmas time, we recognize that maybe we're not being pursued by or we're not trying to escape Odin and the Wild Hunt. We are trying to escape our greed and our selfishness or we are trying to balance our luxury and our immense wealth with charity and giving to others because we recognize that other people are struggling and going through a horrible period at this time. Odin and the wild hunt though is always just um, figurative of other awful things that might happen. So yeah I suppose the hunt then was the, the perils of winter whereas the hunt now is the perils of losing a, a, a job or falling on hard times in some other way and you give to the soup kitchen because you know one day mm. you might need it. It could be that as well. And it's also the time, as we've discussed, where depression is at its height, where people feel depression the most and people feel grief and loss. And so when we're at our festivities, we look around and we see all the new babies that were born mm. that year and we see all the people who've gotten married and partners have joined our family. And then we also notice the empty chairs and that is a, a, a moment of a lot of grief and stress for people and so that is a constant balance that is happening all the time and I think that this is very much very much reflected in our contemporary culture we have there are very few movies that are like joyful perfect happy movies we have different kind of tropes of movies right there's the dysfunctional family Christmas type of movie national lampoon's mm. christmas vacation where home, alone. home alone, uh where we we see major dysfunction in families and people hating their families and people struggling with their families and then we have a lot of the the dickens christmas carol ghost story of the bad person becoming the good person so you have that with the grinch you have that with elf and his mm. his actual biological father being on the naughty list and how he transforms and we have a lot of these transformative narratives and then we have things like it's a wonderful life which is very much a retelling of the christmas carol but using the method of an angel mm. and a suicide an attempted suicide on christmas eve to to reflect upon one's life and a lot of our christmas carols are also part of that so we have all of these kinds of things that that we sing literally about our dysfunction and our concerns and our darkness and our worries um, or we watch but we see some sort of resolution in that and perhaps the only way that we can understand goodness and light and happiness is to experience a balance of that to experience some of the darkness um, to experience some of the the badness of life and to then sort of choose to go into the new year with happiness and cheerfulness and merriment mm. etc because you have maybe a fuller appreciation of everything that could happen uh, not just the good things that you want to happen 
So happy Christmas. My idea of happy Christmas is only half the story and you can't have the happiness without acknowledging the unhappiness. Now I sort of have a backward example of what you just mentioned. Um, one of the finest, actually it is considered the finest short story in the English language, is The Dead by James Joyce. And this is a story that starts off with a lot of merriment and then ends, as most of James Joyce's stories do, with depression and sadness and longing. And there's no turning back from that. So in the story, there's a couple, uh, Gabriel and Greta Conroy, and they've been married for a while. And they go to a party by uh, Gabriel's aunts. And everything's fine. There's a lot going on, though. Uh, Greta and Gabriel go home. And she's very upset, and he is asking her what's wrong, and she's just completely consumed by this memory of Michael Fury, who was one of her loves when she was younger, um, and he died because he was waiting by her window in the snow, and you know she feels kind of responsible for his death. But Gabriel is upset. Why are you thinking about this boy that died a long time ago that you were in love with? Like I'm here now, and. Everything is just consumed by this depressing memory, this ghost, as we were talking about, mm -hmm. that has come back to haunt them during the Christmas time. And it's just, yeah, yeah. it starts out with merriment and then <laughs> there's no turning back at that point at the end. Yeah, and you plan for the happy times at Christmas, but when you invite your family members over or you go to family members' houses, you then have bring up old arguments and old mm. quarrels, the ghosts of all your, your past animosity towards each other. So... Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I stand corrected, yeah. Bridget, thank you very much for your time and for sharing all this with us. Yes, we really appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks to Justing for the music, New Media for the artwork, and a big high five to Jeff at Central Sound and Picture. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe. You can contact us on Facebook and Twitter at The Owlish Folk. Send us questions or comments to theowlishfolk at gmail.com. My father-in-law started drinking wine with my husband one night, and... My father-in-law said, oh, let's drop a couple of Ambien. And my husband said, no, this is a terrible idea. Well, my father-in-law did it, got drunk, went to bed. The next morning, my mother-in-law woke up screaming. We didn't know what happened. We went into the bedroom. It's just red everywhere. We was thought he it, dead? Well, we thought it was a murder scene. He puked <laughs> wine all over the place, and he had no, uh, no memory of that. Ambien, good Because times. of Ambien, yeah. <laughs> Ambien, a good pill for the holidays. Okay. <laughs> The Alish Folk, brought to you by Ambien. <laughs> Puke your walls red this Christmas.